0: Hello, Micah. How are you going? I'm very well, mate. How are you? So,
1: sorry, just one second. No, you're right. Yeah, uh, just trying to figure out how to get the sound to go through the way I want it to go.
0: Don't worry, we've just had well 13 minutes now of uh, of Skype worries, so I think <laughs> you're allowed at least another 20 minutes yourself. Uh, it's okay. What are you uh, what are you trying to get him through? Uh, headphones or
1: <laughs> No, um, I'm trying to. So the, the video for Skype doesn't work very reliably. Uh, no. So I like to just use it like a phone. But um, yeah, but I can't seem to persuade the audio to come through. The phone output is determined to use the speakers on the phone.
0: Because why wouldn't it? That's, oh, it's the
1: worst. Yeah. <laughs> there we are. OK, I think so. I sort of have to pretend like I'm you know commuting or something. No, I, I figured it out after all that.
0: If you want to move to your car and use your uh, use your hands free in there, that'd be absolutely fine.
1: It's just, you know, since the neighbors already don't think I'm strange enough, I might as well sit in my car what? in my own driveway.
0: Yeah, on the phone. Oh, sorry. I, I couldn't get Scott. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's I fine. Have, it's I absolutely
1: out... not a dodgy drug deal.
0: Yeah, I get yeah.
2: free Wi-Fi on planes nowadays as well, if that's easier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> if we if we all just book a budget airline really quickly, uh, and we can just get a red eye it'd be a bit easier to do it that way.
1: All those old Ryanair memories from when I used to live in the UK. <gasps> Fantastic.
0: Oh, How long were you goodness. living in the UK for? Uh
1: well, 5 years as a boy and uh, in Scotland, although that's before Ryanair's time, and uh, and then one year I did my masters in Cambridge, and so I was there for a little more than a year, a little less than a year.
0: That that's really helpful. to know Micah. because we weren't already intimidated enough by having
1: a genuinely intelligent person on the (laughs) podcast
0: cambridge oh my god just just, just, just of being
1: intimidated (laughs) the uh Uh i was i mean you can imagine what i was like as a lad at i was 22 going to cambridge and of course i i remembered you know we moved there i just really after i got married and i was i was remembering how i grew up in aberdeen and uh and you know Going to Cambridge was not sort of what me or anybody like me ever thought about then. So I was very overawed the whole time. I I think
0: they'd probably still count you in the stats of people who were born in Aberdeen to go to Cambridge, even if you (laughs) spent the majority of your life in in Canada. Yeah, maybe.
2: Well, yeah, because now that means there's one. So that's good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a big improvement. Big improvement. Should we... Should we, uh, we'll do a little intro and then we can crack on with some wonderful tales of you drinking bucks fast as a, as a three-year-old boy on the streets of Aberdeen. If that's all right with you? <laughs> we'll
1: see, ya. We'll see where we go.
0: Fantastic. Again, thank you so much for, for coming not on. Not at all. Not at all. Is, uh, are we all ready? Are we all, uh, comfortable? Yeah. Yep. Oh, by, by the way, I'm Will, and the, uh, the northern one is Dan. Hi. Okay. Good <laughs> day, Will. Good day, Dan. Nice to meet you, mate. Nice to meet you. Right. <clears throat> Ready. Uh, do you want to do a three, two, one, Dan? Yes, please, mate. Lovely. Three, two, one... absolutely thrilled to be joined by the legally british micah mccurdy you know micah from his site hockeyviz.com or his twitter account at ineffective math both used to explain hockey in a way even knuckle draggers like ourselves can understand by using bright colors and shapes micah thank you very much for coming on how are you getting on
1: uh i'm well thanks thanks for having me
0: our pleasure our absolute pleasure we were we were just talking to to reveal behind the curtain a little bit about your um the fact that you were born in Aberdeen. So again, you are legally British.
1: I lied, I was born in Canada, but I moved to Aberdeen as a very young child.
0: So the, was, the lies are unraveling, and the story right. is just getting more and more twisted.
1: I did, I did endear myself immediately. The first year I was there in, in Aberdeen, I endeared myself to my new compatriots by winning a Robbie Burns poetry competition, which I reckoned would endear me to them, and in fact made them hate me. <laughs>
0: it's quite impressive for a first year
1: the uh, they did not appreciate foreigners as they correctly clogged me from <laughs> having anything to do with the bard
0: e- even being uh, even being that young they they clocked oh. you in and were like right that's oh her. absolutely <laughs> so, in fact, so they were what,
1: very keen to give me an american nickname because they considered i was american uh and so they called me mitch i
0: mean mitch is I, I could see it working either side of the border not that i'm that au fait it was brilliant. <laughs> it, it wasn't feel, meant as an endearing nickname then.
2: Yeah, I, I do feel as well that the more north you get in the UK, the worse it is for you to show any sign of smarts in any way. So obviously, yes. as you get further and further north, being smarter is it sort of it's just incredibly, like it gets much worse for you the further north you get in this country and indeed into
1: Scotland. What little intelligence I displayed as a child was was disastrous. Yes,
0: yes, that is true. That is true. But but it didn't put you off uh, pursuing academia like later in life,
1: which is you know good. Well, no, it's sort of the only place I'm I'm use, so <laughs> I might as well.
0: <laughs> that, that that's the sort of self deprecating language that only a man who spent some of his formative years in Britain could produce. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> what um what brought your parents to to Aberdeen? I assume you weren't the one driving. The move. No, the no, I was.
1: I was five. <laughs> um, the uh the University of Aberdeen, as you may or may not know, has an excellent theology department, and uh, my father did his PhD in theology when I was a boy.
0: Oh, so is he a um? Is he uh is he of the cloth? Is he or?
1: Yes, he's. Uh, in fact, he he like much like me, he sort of strained his entire life to try to get an academic job as a theologian, mm-hmm. which he did in small places from time to time and mostly had to had to spend his time being a minister instead considerably easier job to get the and similarly i tried very hard for many years to be a pure mathematician the at various parts of the world and uh, without success and returned to to where my father was born um, and not far from where i was born to halifax nova scotia where i am now and that's part of the joke the uh, people always ask on podcasts i might as well tell you now where the the slightly curious twitter handle comes from and the ineffective math is a joke on how i spent so many years of my life doing mathematics and could never get a mathematics job
0: so you're uh, you're an ineffective mathematician
1: that's right but i do yeah. it so you know but, can't and, say and, i'm not a mathematician i just don't do it very well
0: and to do is to succeed michael surely
1: mm-hmm. that's the approach i take and I course, I think... so i sort of fell into hockey uh, yeah i of off I was... the side
0: Doing some very casual research, and I wouldn't go as far as f- stalking. I haven't seen your uh, your holiday photos in the last couple of years, but I saw you only got into hockey when you were about twenty one.
1: Yeah, you were, in fact, when I was when I was in Australia, which the, is uh, so
0: yeah, the hockey hotbed of the summer southern hemisphere.
1: Sure. <laughs> well, that's well. In fact, it's just the opposite. Is that? And in, in fact, that's the reason. So. So i was in I was in Aberdeen until I was ten. and then we moved to Romania for one year. That I think will have to be a long story for another time. But then after that, we were back in Canada. And so I was there as a young teenager. So I was in Halifax from twelve until until twenty one or twenty two or so when i and then I discovered that that in England it was one thing. But in Australia, it was much, much worse, where hockey, which I had become used to, just being everywhere, just in the water. You know, the, you you have the same thing with football.
0: Yeah, just absolutely. everywhere
1: you go, you you cannot escape it. You know, and even people who just aren't football fans in the slightest, they know all about it. You can't, you can't not know.
0: There, you know there's you, an innate understanding of the sport just because of your, your geographical location.
1: Right, it's on every pub TV. It's every single person on the train is talking about it. Everyone in every city you know, is mad about it, it seems. And so so even if you, you know, if you sort of like it, but you're not really keen on it, then it's sort of just there for you. Don't have to do any work at all. And and it's the same with hockey in Canada. And so when I discovered all of a sudden I was in England, you know, not so bad, only four hours, the time difference. And then I moved to Sydney. And now all of a sudden I'm badly homesick and and realized with a jolt all of a sudden that I hadn't heard anybody say a word about hockey for months and thought, well, I will have to go find it out. And, you know, if you say to somebody, you know, you go to a pub and say, do you have the hockey? They say, sorry, the field hockey. And so you have to, you know, it's, and and once you have to seek something out yourself, then all of a sudden you you engage with it at a level that's much, much different. And So, so
0: ab- absence makes the heart grow stronger, fonder, rather.
1: Yeah, right. Not stronger, but definitely fonder. <laughs> and so I paid, especially in the middle of my PhD, which was, which was like a lot of PhDs, in fact, I think like every PhD, a, a long, bleak, isolating sort of time, hockey was a a constant companion and a, and a reminder of home. And so, but of course, because I had the extra training, I mean, extra is not the word, but because I had that background in science and math from my from my earlier degrees, I couldn't help but when I thought to myself, oh, I wonder I wonder how the senators are going to do on this California road trip. And then, well, I thought, well, I'll work it out. And then you just try to write down a little thing. You think, well, you know, I need a sort of a model to do this properly. Well, I need some data for the model. And then all of a sudden it sort of got out of control.
0: Do, do you think... Sorry, sorry, Dan, you go on.
2: I was just gonna say, yeah, I feel that's interesting with you in regards to sort of noticing hockey more, being on Australia. I think we have the same thing here in England, is that because it's so niche over here as it would be in Australia, it feels like it's your little secret and then you can afford mm. that you form more of an attachment to it, I feel.
1: There was so for instance when I was in Australia, towards the end of my PhD, the Canucks went to the Cup. And and most Sydney siders who have a connection to Canada have a connection to Vancouver you know there's direct flights the anyone who's ever paid any attention to the NHL is probably a Canucks fan you know with a slight chance at the, at one of the more popular sort of bigger teams the Kings the Leafs a little bit but the but the west coast canadian teams are where are where most australian fans end up and so when they went to the cup the sort of all of the hockey fans in the, in all of sydney a city of what 5ish million people sort of all came out of the woodwork and and so this is before i knew anything about twitter um and so we were all—we had these little Facebook groups where we'd find each other, and people would say, "Oh, you know, you should know so and so. He's he's British, but he loves hockey. Oh, you should know so and so. He's Canadian," and the and we all sort of found each other, and and started like going to pubs in larger and larger numbers, um, and eventually petitioned the Lord Mayor to give us a variance on the alcohol consumption laws so that we could open, and so that a pub that that really wanted our business could open up an hour earlier, so that we could get pissed while we watched the Canucks lose Game Seven. D- it had, it had this, incredible. So it had this it had this incredible like this great you know, all of these people were I I'm not certain any of them would have been my friends had I met them, you know, in Toronto where they were from or in in anywhere else where they were from. But because we were all very far away from wherever we had come from, or even the native Australians, were thinking to ourselves, you know, they really had that same feeling, like, oh, I've I've sort of worked my way into this secret little club. And so we were mad about it. And that that really makes it easy to, to sort of put your head down and put a lot of work and a lot of hours into it because it feels like something really special, not just like sort of the same thing that everybody else does. Although of course now I'm back in Canada and everybody else does pay attention to it.
0: It's it's that thing where where you've invested so much of your time and effort to find and experience something that to find other people who are willing to go to such lengths for that, yeah, you know, hobby because sport sports is a hobby at the end of the day. Yeah, is is something that can really surpassed like you say any other sort of ba- social boundaries that you'd ever find it's, it's just incredible
1: and so i i didn't strongly consider myself a canucks fan before or since but but for the for that playoff series for that that run you know because it was in a particular geographic place for just those reasons that you said that was a very very special thing to be part of it's funny
0: how um yeah, we always hear of, of a, a lot a deep playoff run or, or a cup run uniting a city around the team. You know, say with the Raptors in the NBA last year,
1: that oh, happens. yes.
0: that that can happen with the Vancouver Canucks in Sydney, Australia. It's just right. perverse, absolutely perverse.
1: But that's you know, but that's what people are like. And I sort of in a smaller way, you know, I was in I was in Australia and became a, a Swans fan for the AFL, the Aussie Rules yeah. Football, which which you can't get here. And so now I sort of very, very slowly and gently repeat the process with a smaller group in a smaller city with a different sport.
0: I I mean, I'd say you probably have less AFL fans in, in Nova Scotia than you would hockey fans in Sydney, but I, I just don't know what to bet against anymore.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> 10 times ten times fewer people is a reasonably good bet. Only and half yeah. a million in Halifax, and that's only if you're being very generous.
0: <laughs> and and even if you apply the same percentage of hockey fans in Sydney to, to AFL, fans in Nova Scotia, I think you'd probably be uh, coming up a bit short there
1: I think so
2: So did hockey find its way into your life, essentially just because you're Canadian and you couldn't avoid it like you said, like us English people with football or was there another way for you into hockey?
1: That was, no that was really the way of it, and then I sort of it kind of laid dormant for a while, you know when you're a little kid you you stay up and you watch Saturday night games because that's that's one of those things that you can get away with staying up for you know if you because yes. because it's because it's in the culture right you know you say to your dad and my dad wasn't even big on wasn't even a particularly big hockey fan although he and I sort of got into it together later in life which was another another incentive for me the and so you know you say something like oh I want to stay up and watch the, the late game on Hockey Night in Canada I want to stay up until eleven thirty when you're you know 13 or something and that's sort you know pushing it a little bit but if you but it's hockey and so you know your dad wants to say, well, fine, why not let the kid enjoy the national thing? And and so then there's, you know, it's a little all of those tiny little barriers that might be somewhere else just aren't there. And you, you know, just the opposite. And so then but in terms of personal commitment, you know, really like I mean, now it's my career. And, and that came much, much later. And, and did he, sorry, I like no, that. no, you go on.
0: I was just going to say about the your your move into the analytical side of things, and specifically your work with hockey. Is obviously, do you it might be a bit of a probing question, but do you think you'd have ended up doing this kind of stats work if you had had a let's say a natural? If you, you know, say you hadn't found hockey while you were doing your your masters, your PhD. Mm. Sorry, do you think yeah? You know, if you'd have just evolved into it like your, your average Canadian boy, for want of a better term do you think you'd still have ended up doing the work you're doing now?
1: I do you know I, this is actually an extremely difficult question. I, mm. it, it strikes me, you know, every time, every, not to be sort of too philosophical, but every effort I make at trying to discern, you know, which, which were the crucial moments in, in, in what brought me the things that are important in my life now, my job, my wife, my children, my, you know, all of these things. So many of the, of the sort of, Key details are things that you wouldn't you wouldn't believe. If you sort of wrote it down in a work of fiction, you'd say, Well, that's ridiculous. You know, a little tiny thing like that couldn't possibly have, you know, a serious effect. That's just terrible writing. And yet, you know, in retrospect, I mean, all those stories are are incredibly long, and, and I won't bore you with any of them, but but it's very hard to say, well, you know, obviously it had to be like this or or you know, could well have been like that if it only had not been for this other thing, you know, in this dramatic crux moment. And it's not really there's so much incident, so much curiosity, so much happenstance that seems to go into all these things. So I, I, I honestly don't know.
0: But that, that's uh, to follow you quickly down that philosophical rabbit hole. That, that I think is the beauty of life. There are so many parts of everyone's individual story that you look at, and you, like you say, you think if you wrote it down as a work of fiction, it just wouldn't, yeah, you know, it wouldn't sell, it wouldn't fly. But that's it. <sighs> It's hard to—I mean, for me personally, I find it hard to say whether I believe in fate or not because you just look at so many different things that happen in life, and like you say, if if it wasn't for minute details, it'd be the most, you know, mundane and and sort of inane little details yeah. that you—they are part of the fabric, and if you take those away, it is a completely different story. So I, I absolutely hear what you're saying.
1: You do see little details crop up though, like. Like for instance, the there's there's common threads that you can run through, and they're not really narrative threads, they're more like just like personality threads and 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 tastes. So when I was, you know, mathematics, for instance, has been has been a constant presence of one type or another in my life throughout the and so taking quantitative approaches to something, so it was always always going to be like that. So whatever kind of job I ever got, if it was sports, it would be one thing. If it was academia it would be another, but it was always going to be quantitative. It was always going to be visual, like those 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 elements have always been there. Like my PhD, for instance, is is pure mathematics. And you know, if four people have read my PhD thesis, I will be ecstatic. You know, I I'm not even one of those people. Like, but the 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 specific detail of what it's about is not relevant. But the methods that I used are entirely pictures. So all the proofs, or almost all the proofs, are done in pictures. In fact, that was, that was the point of the thesis, is that you could accomplish all of these tasks using pictures, whereas before you had to use these long, the sort of the symbols that, that you're familiar with that you conjure up in your mind if you haven't done any mathematics yourself. You have this, this sort of Goodwill Hunting style, you know, chap writing on a window with lots of Greek letters, you know, and a lot of math actually does look like that. But that visual approach is something that I did in my PhD, and then even though that material, I don't do anything like that anymore, since now it's all hockey all the time but the visual approach is still the same only now it's data and it's trying to connect with fans who don't have any mathematical background instead of highly technical specialists so even and, though the subject matter changes and then sort of the plot if you like is all different all the time the, the elements and the themes are are extremely similar
0: that's absolutely the idea it's taking this the same sort of approach and and way of of critically thinking and analyzing yeah you know, anything be it like you say be it sports be it maths be it I mean I, to, to an extent, you can get it with with other other things like literature and films as well and and presenting sure. it in an in a more easy to digest uh, you know, form
1: well, and, and of course, the first audience for all of my work is always me mm-hmm. and and that and that's part of why everything is so relentlessly visual. It's not just you know it's sort of cheap and and glib to say, well, it sells, and in, I mean, in a way, it does after years and years of trying but but it's the only way that I can understand. so there's sort of no choices that way you know we were talking about we we're talking a moment ago about how so many choices seem to be spurred on and, and minuscule i mean other choices are completely inevitable where for me understanding things in non-visual ways is just completely impossible um which is which is a little bit unusual actually among mathematicians there's not not quite so many visual learners um tend to be much more symbolic much more formal and and i was a bit of an odd ball that way um I don't know if I would have ever called myself weak or strong relative to other mathematicians, but that stylistic choice was very different. And that's made it a lot easier in a way for me because since precisely because all of the things that I put out, if, they don't, if they're not clear to me, then, then they don't get through the filter and they don't get pushed on to somebody else. And so I never feel like I'm doing something ad hoc or something um, artificial that, because it always has to make sense to me in the first instance. And then that gives it an extra satisfaction.
2: So in the mathematics community then, Micah, is, did anybody ever, I don't want to say look down, but if, if you were more visually based and other mathematicians normally aren't, did you ever feel any pushback or, oh, this guy has to be visually based, that's a bit odd. Did you ever feel anything like that or was it all normal?
1: Yeah, well, not exactly pushback. It's sort of, it's more like, you know, like we were telling stories a second ago about how I grew up in all these different countries and traveled around, you know, the same way that you meet somebody like that in a pub and you think, oh, one of these people who travels, you know, it's a little bit unusual. <laughs> oh, like, he's a visual you,
2: guy. Wow. Right, he's
1: just sort of, you know, it's it, to some people, it it's interesting to other people, it's annoying to other people. Again, it's just completely irrelevant. And so, you know, you have these little communities, though, and you, you you know, I wasn't, certainly wasn't the only person who thought like that. And every now and again, you'd find someone else and say, oh, look at, at so-and-so's work, he's also doing something a little bit like you. And you would find something common to talk about. Okay. But it was, you know, ostracization, definitely not. But every now and again, some people would say, oh, you know, not my thing, not my style. Kind of like, you know, don't like jazz
0: you were you said a second ago Micah, about how you know, you're, it, the idea wasn't to make something that sells and I, i'll be quite honest michael without trying to blow too much smoke up your rear end what you do absolutely does sell and it's not necessarily about the selling and the the sort of um monetization side of it i'd say but it it it's accessibility your work i find i find that there are so many hockey fans out there that have a desire to be involved with you know advanced stats or however we're terming it nowadays but just don't have the the, maybe the confidence in their own sort of mathematical understanding or just digesting the vast amounts of data that are out there and to to put to put out what you do especially your heat maps is just it makes it so much easier to understand, you know, expected goals and, and, and shot differentials and, you know, score effects and stuff like that. It's just, it is just fantastic work. And and in a lot of ways, it's I don't, <laughs> without getting too um, uh, hyperbolic, but it's almost like missionary work, you know, <laughs> going out to the unwashed and uneducated and bringing the glory of advanced information to hockey fans.
1: So I I mean, I, I don't. It's funny. I don't think of it in missionary terms, but I, it's. I mean, I have a background there too. My, I mentioned how my father was a theologian, and mm-hmm. then that year, that year, I, I sort of glossed over a moment ago where we were in Romania again when I was a child, um, was my father being a missionary, and okay. uh, of course, the, all, so it
0: all wraps around together. Of course, yeah, you know. yeah, it exactly.
2: together. Times a circle.
1: but the, but where I mentioned how a visual approach is a little bit unusual among mathematicians, it's not at all unusual in the world at large, and and in particular, in fact, I think it's the from what I can gather, I think it's the dominant way of of thinking and learning for most people who are involved with hockey. And that could well be true of, of lots of other sports as well, from what I can gather. And so maybe that's part of so there's sort of a crossover effect there, where what was unusual... So there's obviously still an element of being unusual, because the, the methods themselves are reasonably advanced now. I mean, this is one of those jokes within... The advanced stats community is that it hasn't ever really been particularly advanced. You know, dividing <laughs> dividing counts by minutes played is about as advanced as it gets, for or has been until very recently. Well, so
0: I thought I quite enjoy being able to uh, calculate Corsi in my head. It's uh, a very satisfying <laughs> uh, situation to be in. It makes me feel very very smart, Micah.
1: It's so you know, like there's there's a lot of of the mathematics is very often as simple as. As can you subtract and divide? and and so only so only recently have I been using a lot more advanced things. And of course, the other trick is that sometimes what what is advanced for me is more advanced than it needs to be, so that it doesn't look advanced. and some of the some of the work that you put in is is specifically for digestibility. You know, so those heat maps, for instance, the the have to be tweaked just right so that so that the point that they're trying to get across, comes across and in the same way that you know that you need to know a great deal of music theory in order to make a lot of music that sounds good to people who don't know any music theory is the same kind of effect where where that visual approach is one thing but the machinery is all sort of behind it and nobody wants to see the machinery Um, you know i still publish that stuff because occasionally one or two people do but mostly the people want to see the results and you can make them pop with a little bit more regularity, if you have a little bit more technical machinery behind you,
0: it's it's the whole idea of you know it's one thing to understand the, something to a to a level yourself, but then to be able to explain it to a five-year-old, you have to have such a more advanced uh, understanding of it to like you said to break it down into more digestible chunks. So it helps to
1: have an actual five-year-old, incidentally. The, uh... <laughs> and so when you you know, not to say that people on Twitter are like five-year-olds, but oh, they are—they when... are. they absolutely are. <laughs> I mean, you—I think uh, you give you the people it. of Twitter uh, too much
2: credit there, actually.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but when you when you get into the habit of explaining these things to people who don't have the sophistication you're used to, you're forced to be very, very careful. And and also when when people are extremely interested but have very short attention spans, which also matches children and Twitter, that that practice of explaining things in ways that that get across quickly is. Is really invaluable, and and so now that's not just a, you know, everyday, how do I get through Tuesday life skill, but a professional skill, and those overlaps are incredibly helpful.
0: Okay, so not not to put too much of a microscope on the uh, the animal testing you're performing on your children, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> how how would you, what what is the process then, for like what sort of things do you show show your kids, and what do you what, what probing questions do you ask for you to understand right i've got this down now i can release it to a larger world
1: so the children don't see the hockey stuff they they they're extremely um literal minded so there is you know it's one thing to say well like you you explain it one way and so then you get good at explaining it another way or that or that people have a particular visual style but then there's also and this is relevant for hockey and and the fact that it's being played in developed nations with good, reasonably good educational systems. You know, if I put up a graph and something that looks like a topographic map, that essentially everybody says, Oh sure. I can read that. You know, I, I, I saw a map like that when I was hiking in the such and such as on holiday the other, the other year. Or if you put up an X, Y graph that shows time on one axis and shows some interesting thing on the Y axis, you know, they say, Oh sure. I've seen that. I've seen that in newspapers. I've seen that at school. I've seen that all over the place. You know, that, that kind of shared cultural background, and so that's one thing you definitely don't see with you know with six year olds mm. you know, they don't have they don't have that kind of data literacy even if they're interested in some of the subject matter and so you the the other thing of course is that when you're explaining things to children you do things in words right it's much much more easy to speak the because they don't have that that media literacy I
0: think there's definitely something to be said for the for the the speed at which you can digest, say, you know, your the traditional player summaries. You, you put up sort of offense impact, defense impact, and then special teams as well. It's just so easy to get a quick snapshot of, of oh, oh, what sort of season did, you know, did Brent Burns actually have last year or, was that, you know, recent tradee Justin Falk, how good actually has he been for, for Carolina over the last few years? And there is definitely something you know you say, um, the, the short attention span that children have is, is absolutely the, the way that, all media is social media or otherwise you know even Mm. say say you're looking for something to watch on youtube even on a topic that you're interested in i'd say four out of five people would be deterred by a video that's longer than 10 minutes long and that's when you're setting aside dedicated time to digest something let alone just scrolling through a twitter timeline
1: yeah and you i definitely find that and then you you have sort of a layered approach because every now and again there's always going to be people who say oh you know this is sort of cute and cheap, but I want to see the real deal. And you say, well, you know, how much time do you've got? And then you, and you can get stuck into that if you want. And so for me, that sort of, in some sense, is easier for me because my, my mathematical background is coming from a place where it says, you know, if you haven't written a 25-page paper, or in my case, my papers, because they're full of pictures instead of symbols, tended to run more like 50 or 60 pages, just ungodly lengths of stuff. That, you know, if you don't have that, then no one will even speak to you. And so you that background is is even though the subject matter is totally different, that that really gives you a leg up too, because then occasionally people will you know, some people will even be rebarbative or they'll really uh you know in fact just today I've had a handful of people, I mean, you know what Twitter is like, they've been cranky enough, they don't like that I like Josh Hosang, for instance, who's on waivers today, and and they'll quite happily needle you at, at great length. And so you have to have real command about not just not just a individual command like you remember but also you have to have written out in thorough detail you know these are all the things that i did this is how i approached these things this is how we solved those problems that you're imagining
0: yeah i, I haven't just painted some uh some, some red and blue circles on a uh, on a rink diagram i've actually thought about this i promise
1: right and the, every now and again you get somebody who says oh you know this is this is sort of too slick it can't possibly be actual data and uh you know, the sort of, like you run into sometimes where where women say, you know, if they're good looking, then they can't be taken seriously as engineers. The you run into these sorts of problems. You know, not that anybody's ever accused me of being good looking or come to that an engineer, so, <laughs> but but that you know you do get that every now and again where people say, you know, some people really like stats, but they think stats are are massive tables full of numerals and they won't accept anything else.
0: Yes, yeah, stats can't be easy.
2: So at the end of the Stanley Cup, then when Pat Maroon said it looks like there's still opportunities out here for big boy hockey and things like that. Did you just throw your palm into your forehead as quickly as possible and think, no, Pat, what are you saying?
1: <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I try not to pay too much attention to what players do, sorry, to what players say, and instead pay attention to what they do. And this is, this is one of those unusual things because players don't, don't make any extra money if they're extremely good at talking about the things that they do. They, there's no... There's no premium for being able to explain yourself unless you're a coach. And they and even they, of course, have a very unusual, very highly cultured way of talking, you know, within hockey culture, where you have to sort of code everything you say up in, in these particular hockey phrases. And so one of the approaches that I like about doing things with data is, is it lets me just pay attention to what people do. So one of, I had like a little miniature revelation on these parts where it's you know, you hear coaches talk, and they talk about how, oh, you know, we need to have so-and-so. We need to have a veteran defender on the, to stabilize the defense core. And, and, you know, and hockey, nerds of every stripe say the things that you expect them to say, oh, you know, how can you tolerate this? It's so dreadful to have, you know, we know these guys are over the hill. They're so bad, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, the same is all true, but it comes around out again and again, and everybody likes to trot out the old, the old saws. But then if you look at the players that coaches actually play, then the maximum number of minutes go to twenty four year olds, which is exactly consonant with what you would expect if you did a complicated aging study like I did this past summer. And so what coaches say and what they do, just like what players say and what they do, is is unusually different. And a lot of a lot of what people say, you know, you'd rather people were saying talking sense about what they do, but but a lot of the disconnect there is just because there's no incentive for people to correctly or efficiently explain these things. In fact, sometimes there's the opposite, where there's every reason to mislead people about what it is you actually think, not for Pat Maroon specifically, but for just a little general discourse. And so it's easy enough to be caught up in that, and so I, I kind of fight it a little bit.
0: I, I, I think, want... sorry, Dad, just, just yes. quickly, I, I think that's absolutely it, Like With the players especially, there's, there's an element of the magic circle when it comes to their aversion yep. to uh, to trusting in analytics, because they don't, they want to think, you know, my great understanding of NHL psychology, uh, they want to give the perception that what they do is unquantifiable. Yeah, you, know, you can't outside of goals and assists, or maybe say percentage. Riff. What I do is so special that you couldn't possibly measure it. You couldn't possibly tell me that I'm a more or less effective player than player X because what I do is so special i'm so elite at my job that that yeah you can't simply quantify it so so you'll never have a player accepting that oh yeah you know um you know expected goals percentage is is a very useful stat to measure because then that's doing themselves a disservice when it comes to their their own sort of appraisal within the culture within within the
1: league that's definitely part of it there's also an extra effect too where where there's this in my mind there's still a disconnect between between impact analysis like the kind that i would do at a very high level and and what players actually do on the ice where very often i can say with some fairly high degree of certainty that i'm quite sure that this is the impact of this particular player that this is this is what he is causing to happen on the ice and so statistically that's reasonably reasonably aggressive you know to to assert something causal is quite quite strong Mm. but then but then to say, you know, and this is how, you know, by doing these things and by not doing those things, that's how that, you know, specifying a mechanism is, uh, much, much harder. And I routinely can't do that. I don't have the tools to do that. And of course, that's that, that thing, that gap in between, this is the impact and this is what you have to do to get it is coaches, right? That's there as a, as a collective, that's their job is to know what things ought to be done so as to get the desired results. And then of course for the players, the job is to do the things. And, and so, I mean, it goes without saying that, that I, I mean, I don't know how to skate. I'm I'm not a hockey player. And the, so obviously I can't do the things, but even that explanation, there's like, I kind of feel like there's this excavation work that has to be done from the top down. The, and I really appreciate the people who are, who are lower, you know, closer to the ice as it were, who are doing the work to come meet me to say, well, this is this is why I think this is a good idea. I think it will cause these results. And if they specify those mechanisms, then we can make some progress into saying, okay, this is this one works, this one doesn't work. You know, things like, you know, these kinds of jump-ins are not accomplishing the task that you want them to accomplish. And these kinds of carry-ins are, or vice versa. You know, but that like linking up those things between these are the instructions I'm giving to players and these are the outputs that I expect. And these are the ones that I'm getting. You know, that there's a huge amount of work there. And there's very little being being done. You know, Ryan Stimson is leading the banner on this and a handful of other people oh, yeah. on what I like to call sort of quantitative coaching of of really like linking up data work with coaching work. And, and you know, you need all of these, these sort of connecting fields all the time. We were talking earlier about, you know, connecting mathematics. That's one thing. But then you need to also connect in kinesiologists and coaches and fatigue people and strength and conditioning people and all the rest of it. And so there's there's a huge amount of work still to be done.
2: Off the back of that, have you had or knowingly had any pushback from anybody within the NHL at any kind of level? Not naming any names, Jack Johnson, but maybe, <laughs> you know, somebody within an organization has come back to <laughs> you and said, well, I think you'll find actually that these maps do look like this, but we value this player because X.
1: Oh, yeah. In fact, just uh, I shouldn't tell too many tales out of school, but just the <laughs> other day I... I happened to be by coincidence. I happened to be in an NHL town, and uh, and was pleasantly invited along to a little bit of training camp, which has been going on recently. And had an AGM call me on the carpet and say, you know, I didn't appreciate that tweet you made about so and so. I don't think he's nearly (laughs) that. I don't think he's nearly as bad as you said he was. And and we had and and I wouldn't say that was hostile in any way, but it was definitely um, contentious in the sense that we had totally different opinions. And and so we we had sort of an interesting ten minutes there about, you know, well. You know, I wonder I wonder if he's being affected by this. What about this? What's it gonna happen when he plays with these players? What about these new players? What about this guy who left? And the and discovered that there wasn't quite as much of a distance in between us as we thought at first. But you know, but still sometimes you say, Well, that's the that's the price of doing business in a place where you still only get 280 characters. And also, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I could have been more thorough, but also the you know, you don't you're not putting sort of the most thorough analysis into everything you put out, you know, you can put out a a simple one tweet summary of some guy and it's going to leave out a whole bunch of stuff. And, and when people, you know, when people treat those things like they are, then you find that the contention is much, much less. And then you carry on with them for a little bit. Then you can, you know, you can get something really productive. You sort of, I like to say sometimes that I think of all the graphs as like that hockey viz is like a, a compendium of writing prompts for journalists, and the with that that idea in mind that you sort of take this as a starting point and then you discover oh there's this and then there's this and then there's this and you just all these embroidery details and they don't change the sort of the facts of it but they they stitch it into something that makes sense rather than just being sort of brightly colored blobs that sit there on the page but
0: well, it's it's a, it's a factual jumping off point and it they seem to be used yeah, you know, I was gonna say ad nauseam, but that's definitely the the ne- negative side which I wasn't trying to portray. But yeah, well, I mean it can't... is
1: like that sometimes.
0: Oh, I, I, no, absolutely not, absolutely not. It's like you you can't move for articles with, with your work in there and it, it as a as a pure fan bicycle, it just makes it so much easier to, to digest than than lists of of you yeah, just, know just counting stats sort of thing so with with that conversation with the AGM again not to, to push you too much for any any facts or details or anything but did you find that constructive do, do you think that had any effect on you know say your opinion of the player specifically or just uh, a greater understanding of how to interpret your own data when looking at it through the, the lenses of someone in the front office
1: oh yes absolutely and they you know they like they have in mind a particular development the player in question wasn't particularly old. So they had a, a development path in mind and which I don't have, you know, I don't have that kind of, that kind of investment in specific players. And so they, they had quite specific reasons for why they thought the weaknesses I'd identified were not especially serious. And, and it's not completely clear to me that I would have considered those things, you know, even if I'd had the the data available, but, but I, I certainly kept that in mind and it's, you know you file these things away all the time because then you know there's always data coming available of one kind or another and there's always a cost the primarily your own opportunity time cost somebody says oh i've got such and such data you think well how long would it take me to integrate that into the database how long would it take to make sense of that to clean it to to adjust it to start doing anything useful with it and then if it's the sort of thing that's come up in three or four conversations like that with that agm i just mentioned then all of a sudden you think hmm, maybe i will do that you know go see if there's really anything there even though it wasn't my idea in the first place And you sort of just train your spidey senses, if you like, for for what you might be missing.
2: Is there anything you think in regards to hockey that could be taken from other sports in regards to statistics or analytical analytical data? Is there anything you're kind of pushing for that isn't really being looked at that you would think should be there?
1: Um, I like a lot of what they're doing in basketball. I'm, uh, I'm not a basketball fan. I'm not a fan of the sport, but I'm a big fan of the way that it's analyzed by the people that I know who analyze it. And the, I take a lot of, you know, you, you always want something a little bit outside of what you do so that you can discern just how different it is if you really want to learn something new. And so I find that, that basketball is sufficiently similar to hockey that a lot of the methods I can say, oh, you know, that's just like when I do such and such, and then I can get a handle on understanding it. Um, and so I like a lot of what's going on there. Um, basketball is just a little bit more accommodatoric, a little bit more, you know, you only have got this many options and on ice there's a, there's a few more choices. Um, but that kind of, you know, it's it's always nice to have like a big brother to look up to, say, well, they're doing something really serious and they've got, you know, this is the kind of computers you need. And that like, a lot of that is sort of behind the scenes how am I actually going to get this done? Not so much, you know, this is what I'd like to present. But I also like the presentation too, because it's not, you know, it's not a small sport with a handful of, of, of TV channels displaying it. You know, it's it's a massive, massive industry where lots and lots of people are giving it every scrutiny. And so once you have that, then you know that the kinds of things that are being produced are are being scrutinized by a lot of people, and that gives you a little bit of extra confidence.
0: Michael, we've spoken a bit about yeah. about how different different people, like you say, closer to the eyes view the game differently to you. Do you, and, and yeah, you've said you've not particularly got any allegiance to any um, any teams specifically, but do you find there's a fan in you that there are things about the game that when you watch a game that you know completely contradict all the data you get, but you still know to be true? I, I don't want to use the term eye test because it's a filthy word, but does it ever, do you ever get caught up in, in the allure of the eye?
1: Oh, sure. And, and, and I, in fact, I'm a very, I'm a very sort of, yell at the tv sort of fan the and when i which a lot of people find a bit surprising you know they don't expect they they think i'm going to be sort of cerebral the and and in fact i'm i'm very fond of of especially like high excitement plays and you know like everybody the i mean i'm not a sort of purist all defense like a lot of people sometimes expect and but one of the things I, I do notice more and more that there's a handful of players that I find myself really drawn to, that I really enjoy, who tend to be the more confounding players, the sorts of players where I feel like my analysis is maybe not picking up what they do very well. The, because a lot, of, a lot of statistics, I mean, statistics at its core is about trying to describe what it is you expect, trying to to quantify what you expect and writing it down and being thorough about that sort of thing. And so if people are doing things that are, difficult to expect not just difficult to do but difficult to even imagine ahead of time you know those players are going to be unusual and so eric carlson for instance is is my my go-to example he's by no means the only one in the league you know very often you see him do a thing and you think boy i mean not only did i not expect him to do that nobody on the ice expected him to do that and now the players are in an unusual configuration you know that the sometimes it's it's Obviously threatening. You think, well, that was great. And, you know, you've got yourself a a clear scoring chance. And other times you just think, you know, what's going to happen there? Do his teammates know what's going on? You know, what, how do you interpret that? How do you play with that? How do you move on from that? And, and players who do that, who move the game into unexpected places, the are, are ones that I gravitate to, especially as a, a fan when I'm watching. And, and I think part of it is just that exoticism that, that like not the everyday, Something, something unusual, and especially because I like to think about it afterwards and try to figure out, you know, what, what was it that made that seem unusual? What was it that made that chance seem exciting, even though it was easily saved? And 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 going over those questions is is fruitful, professionally, but also just interesting personally.
0: I mean, if if we could find a way to quantify what Eric Carlson does on the ice, I think we'd all be very very rich men. But That's right. unfortunately. <laughs>
2: I think I'd like Micah to start quantifying GMs or owners because I think a statistical sort of data sheet of Eugene Melnick would be, I think, something to behold. I think Talking might be about shot, doing I...
1: things completely un- unexpected.
0: <laughs> yeah, I,
2: so yeah, Speaking of doing things outside the box, <laughs> I,
1: uh, I I think I would prefer to live. <laughs> slightly, slightly concerned. That in, in fact, this is one of those things I've noticed that there are sort of I've never ventured into. You know, I, I've certainly yelled about <laughs> Eugene Melnick. And, but I've never ventured into to anything really directly critical of um, off ice people. You know, even GMs, of course, cop their more than their fair share of of flag for dreadful moves. You know, and there's never any shortage. You know, Jack Johnson, you mentioned earlier with this terrible contract, and they're already moving on from him apparently. The, but for instance, if you I very briefly did some very very cheap, soft, descriptive stuff about referees. This referee calls more hooking penalties. That referee calls more holding penalties. This sort of, you know, nothing. Just put out a scatter plot with the names of referees on it, and the amount of pushback I got from sources far and wide was incredible. And and part of it, I'm starting to realize, is that that not just for you know watching on the telly and yelling, but but the players are understood to be culturally, like properly understood to be there for our entertainment. You know, one of the things that you get paid for as an NHL player is that all the people who like you are going to yell about how great you are and the ones who don't are going to yell about how dreadful you are. And, you know, that's, that's par for the course. That's part of the job. And, and it's not understood the same way about refs or even about owners or GMs, not quite at the same level. And so you can really, you can really touch rails there. And for someone who's working in the public, you know, I, 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 take that with a little bit of extra caution where so if i'm if i'm going to put out anything more about refs which still interests me it'll be with a great deal more care and caution than i would toss off some chart about oh you know so and so fourth liner is a dreadful fourth liner you, know, you you have to be a lot more careful when you talk about things like th- that aren't actually literally on the ice
0: I, th- I think it's funny how like you said that the referees and, and those who aren't players on the ice are, they're almost meant to be invisible they're almost meant to be you know the, the the sort of puppet masters dressed in black you're not meant to see them even though they, they greatly affect the product on ice and to, to yeah. even do something as you say like a relatively surface level about the uh, about referees I I for one maybe I I can't say I've deliberately dug further for this information but I've never seen anything like that before and that is very much valuable information that really does play have an effect on on the game as a whole I think oh, it does. To to an extent, there's an element of kayfabe when it comes to referees and and the the mythos about their their impact on 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 games. And I'd I'd love to know one day. I doubt we'll ever know, but how much is actually driven to? You know, how much does the league want an entertaining game or a correctly called game, for example?
1: Yeah, I, I, in particular, this habit that the referees have in the NHL, which is well documented by people other than me. Um, Mike Lopez, in particular, has done some good work documenting this, is that um, what everybody can see is true that if you take a bunch of penalties, the next penalty will probably go to the other team.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: In fact, you don't even need to take a bunch of penalties. You really only need to take one. And the probability of you getting the next penalty after you've had the first one um, drops off considerably. And if it's late in the game and you're the home team and you're the one who's had one fewer power play, then your chances of getting another one are especially high. And so the, it's possible, of course, a little statistician in me says, you know maybe maybe that's because you play differently. The, maybe those penalties are actually affecting the way you play, but it seems a bit more likely the, the referees themselves are you know doing their best to be balanced by being imbalanced, and you you can't help but, but try to quantify that. and it's funny, of course, again, going back to what I was saying a second ago about, about where people are strangely sensitive, if you if you talk about the referees as if they were as if they were the referees the sort of black clad invisible people you know then it's one thing to say well they they collectively demonstrate this bias and so home teams can expect this and trailing teams can expect that and all this is all very sort of kid gloves but as soon as you say well this chap is twice as strong in this particular effect than that guy you know as soon as you start once you start putting out referees names and stuff then all of a sudden the pushback is enormously intensified. You know, calling out referees by name, even if you're just saying something like "This is how what he does," and that's what he does, without any judgment about whether or not it's good or bad, the the, the tune changes extremely quickly.
0: It's it's the. Again, again, I'm going to fall back on my very, very basic analogy. It's the magic circle again, Micah, because yeah. nobody knows anything about referees unless you're particularly, you know, the the average fan. You, you can't go on NHL.com and, and search how many how many double minors Tim Peel has given over the last five years, sort of thing. It's
1: Tim yeah. Peel, by the way, just to interrupt you, is absolutely, absolutely a law unto himself. The, every <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> yeah, surprise me at all. He is. Un- I I won't I won't say that I think he's in some sense the worst referee because I don't know what makes a referee good or bad. But I will say in every in every measure of referees I've ever looked at, he is by far the weirdest. And and if there is any truth to this idea, the referees in the NHL act as a unit and sort of all have broadly the same, you know, which they ought to. We know that memos go out that say, please call the rules like this. And this is what we mean when we say this is against the rules, you know, with videos and stuff. And sometimes those even get publicized. If there is one person who is not paying attention to any of that and simply doing entirely as he pleases, it is Tim Peel.
0: So in, in a roundabout way, you're saying Tim Peel is the one referee who's taking the game to unexpected places, <laughs> doing truly remarkable things, and subsequently is the Eric Carlson of referees.
1: <laughs> that's Sure, you can, you can mark me down in the poll quote as saying that Tim Peel is the Eric Carlson of referees.
0: <laughs> Thank Fantastic. you ever so much, Mike. That's
1: absolutely... <laughs> Or that
0: Tim
2: Peel is McBain from The Simpsons. He just doesn't go by the book. He just does. His, he's a complete outlaw. He's like the outlaw,
0: the outlaw Tim Peel. I'd, I'd like to think he's some sort of combination of the of the two. Really, like like if Eric Carlson had a Tommy Gun.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I would or like some hard know. two sticks. I, I approve. I feel like we should do some quantitative analysis of this.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah I, I think fun. we've we've made a real breakthrough here. <laughs> we can really affect change in the league moving forward. <laughs> My, Michael, you've been more than generous with your time. Can I squeeze one last question out of you, please? Of course. I, you, you famously offer a service to uh, to NHL teams, which I don't quite know if anyone's taken taken you up on it to to say no up to five times a season for for
1: is it a million dollar fee? One million Canadian dollars. That's right.
0: Can, uh, specifying the Canadian, you don't want to get done over by that that exchange <laughs> rate. If you could pick one move from the off season to say no to, what what would it be this year?
1: I, the I guess Jack Johnson was actually strictly speaking the end of last season, not this off season. But that deal that the Penguins signed him to was disastrous. Oh, um, the the do you know? I mean, the the backstory to that tweet. I just before I sort of answer the question properly um, is that I was incredibly drunk, and <laughs> it's, it's very it, it's funny. You know, people mention it all the time, and uh, and but it's very embarrassing. It's one of those things where I, I, I don't know if you would describe me as reserved, but. But I is certainly considerably more bombastic than my natural uh, tendency to, to think of myself. But, but the,
0: while it's but while it's bombastic, sorry to cut you off, Michael. It's it's absolutely true, and I I'd wager that there are a significant number of people in in the more high minded corners of hockey Twitter that would be able to successfully provide that service. So I don't think you should feel uh, feel too no. bashful about well. revealing your inner thoughts,
1: <laughs> and of course. You know the funny million dollars has this beautiful ring to it, but the million dollars isn't a great deal more than NHL an minimum, and a lot of players are are actively harming their team
0: for <laughs> so considerably uh, uh, <laughs> more than a million dollars.
1: I, I have to say, you know the the most the one that's most on my mind and could well be the largest mistake, although they might get away with it, um is putting the islanders putting Josh Hosang on waivers today, which which doesn't make the slightest bit of sense to me. And the man's been the subject of any number of rumors any end of of quote unquote character off-ice complaints and his on-ice results especially when you you go through all the rigmarole that i encourage people to do and adjust for his teammates and take care of his competition and make sure you're accounting for his zone starts and all the rest of that are glittering what little you've got i mean he's only played 20 or 30 games in the last few years but but 20 or 30 games is not easy to play at the level that he's played even for for 10 games let alone 30 and and if there's any lesson that Statistics has taught us is that if you have somebody who looks good in a small sample, you should bloody well find out if he really is that good or if he's just been good in a small sample. There and you and he's largely
0: things. so. Sorry again, Mike. He's largely done that in like a third line role with with teammates, like line mates like Casey Sazikas. Like, you know, yeah, all due respect to Casey Sazikas? But I'm sure if, sure. if you staple him to Matt Barzell and, and maybe Brevetier or or Josh Bailey on the other side, he'd probably have even greater results.
1: Well, the, I mean, last, it's funny that even the little scrap of games that he had this last year, that he had five games with Leo Komarov and Valtteri Philpola. That was, those were his line mates. And so that's not, you know, those guys are NHLers and they're not about to be drummed out of the league, although Philpola might not. The, you know, that's, and, and he produced shots and even goals reasonably well, the certainly shots, team shots in particular. Then they moved him onto a, a slightly better line with Brock Nelson and Anders Lee and buried him in his own zone. And he continued to produce lots and lots of shots, and so, the. I mean, I, I have an extra sympathy for him because, um, because of his unusual background, which which intrigues me, uh, and also because I know that people who have, who come from a racialized background like he does, who comes from, come from a, an international background like he does, mm. the, even though he, even though he was born in Canada, the, the, his you know looking up his Wikipedia page and and figuring out his his immediate ancestors is a, an exercise in travel. And and so those are the kinds of players who don't get fair shakes. Uh, and then to see to see promising young players just fall out of the league despite excellent results is really, you know, and it's, of course it's going to madden me if somebody picks him up on waivers, which I expect actually somebody will. I sort of have enough, uh, I couldn't possibly tell you who, but I have enough people on the inside and enough teams now that I hear the whispers and the rumors sometimes. So I think somebody probably will pick him up. But then if he goes on to have, you know, even a half decent year, people will say, "Oh, he turned it around." He needed a change of scenery, the and which is just the things that people say. When in fact he turned nothing around. And I, I mean, if he somehow manages to become even better, I will be astonished. The, but simply continuing to perform as he has done, would be vindication enough for my particular tastes, and uh, and all of those those extra details just sort of make it bite a little bit more. That that the culture can be corrupt and is perhaps overstating it slightly but i don't think so where where particular kinds of players can get overlooked and and then of course you get these extra details oh well he was on waivers oh well he was on three or four teams oh well he was bounced around he's been up and down between ahl oh, his ahl results are spotty and of course he's playing in ahl ranks with ahl players and and like that narrative stuff can be so toxic and, and is really tiresome. You know, the, I really enjoy narrative things when they're, when they're positive, or even when they're just interesting. Like, like that sort of soap opera stuff of, of, can be fascinating, can be compelling. But when it's just designed to, to demean and degrade, then it really puts me off. And so that would have been, I don't know if any, you know, of course the joke is that nobody listens to me like that, let alone pays me a million dollars. Uh, but that certainly would have been high on my list of no. no's.
0: I, I think the the really sad thing Micah, is that a lot of people wouldn't listen to you even if you were actually being paid a million dollars to give that <laughs> advice like you'd without getting too depressing about it you could have spelled out this Hosang story on on the night he was drafted the way he's been treated by the league and it's it's horrendous like i i really want him to be picked up on what he was not only because i want to actually see good players in this glorious league that we have um not only for for Sang's sake but i also just want to I really worry that he's going to be picked up, like you say, and, uh, and turn it around. And especially if it's with uh, a traditionally hard-nosed either GM or coach at the team, because that will so easily feed into the narrative of, oh, you just needed, you know, wrapping yeah, yeah. on the knuckles. he needed to be to be reined in, you know, a la Tyler Sagan, but with a bit more um, negative connotation, all things considered.
1: I mean, if there's if there's a real takeaway – for the sort of my broader philosophy for hockey is that people ought to pay a great deal more attention to what actually happens on the ice and a great deal less attention to everything else. And, and so in as much as, I, I don't know how much influence I've got, but I do try to use it to to shift that culture. And if it's in the service of a more quantitative um, angle, if you like, then, then I think that that can actually have, you know, people often like to say, oh, well, you know, it's math, so it's gotta be dehumanizing and robotic and and I think when you when you factor in those cultural things that are already present, it can actually be considerably can be liberating, can be much fairer, that's the hope at least I
0: think, think that's a...
2: oh, sorry. oh
0: no, no, no. go on, go on Dan
2: So yeah, uh, last question from me Micah um, as we look behind, as we end the interview obviously, as we look behind the man behind the data sheets, <laughs> if you could imagine this was maybe uh, some kind of speed dating scenario uh, what would you like to do
1: outside of hockey? <laughs> Ah, I'm extremely <laughs> fond of board games. The uh,
2: oh, my wife and I, hot. fabulous.
1: My wife and I have between us about 150, and uh, and we have. Uh, in fact, there are, you can probably find some pictures on my Twitter feed if you search, especially for the word hexagon, because they uh, they all go up on two bookshelves in front of a wall that we painted with a hexagonal pattern, um, in a sort of board gamey theme. And so we have we have uh, friends around uh, every every Sunday. So I was up until all hours last night drinking, playing games with my friends. And so that's the, I mean, especially with little kids, the hobbies outside of the house become considerably harder. And, uh, and so that's definitely the, in fact, that plus work is, you know, then domestic responsibilities and making sure the house runs is, uh, is about all my life.
2: Favourite board game then? what you go
1: to? Oh, it depends entirely. I mean, part of the joy of having hundreds is that, you know, you've got one for every situation for every person you're talking to. But my favourite is almost certainly uh, Agricola and uh Uwe rosenberg is probably the the best designer in the world now and, and has been for a decade or more and i think that's his masterpiece
0: could could you briefly describe a grecola to uh, a heathen such as i who uh whose probably last board game i played was cluedo
1: it's a worker placement game so you have different different sort of so shared spots where you try to send your workers instead of and get the best ones before your competitors get their ones um it's the theme is of a, a medieval farm uh and there's every chance that your people will starve and you will be ashamed. It's surprisingly, surprisingly evocative. We have a, it's it's I mean, it's funny to, to describe it this way because it's tremendous fun. But we have a sort of within my circle of people who the game. we have a, a description of a thing that we call the Agricola feeling, which is the feeling before you make your first move, before you have made any choices that you have absolutely, completely ruined all of your own plans crucially this feeling of failure before you begin you know that that oh i've done everything wrong you know i i thought about my problems incorrectly and now all is lost and the, that
0: that feeling of dread of just having no confidence in your own your own decision making
1: and it's very and the game itself part of why it produces this feeling is that it's extremely tightly balanced and and everything you do has that feeling of great importance like if i get this wrong then then everything is lost that sort of taut feeling that you associate with with you know well i mean with good hockey games when you're watching or with something like um like a good chess game between people who know what they're doing where the slightest slip of the hand and all of a sudden you're going to be completely ruined
2: i thought it was just called the life feeling oh, okay. <laughs> never
1: mind depends how you live
2: <laughs> yeah that's true that's true um yeah so okay we'll look forward to the uh, agricola data sheets then on patreon anytime soon
1: yes the uh next week i expect <laughs>
0: michael you've been very very generous with your time thank you ever so much for, for joining us tonight um have you got anything you want to plug before we say au revoir
1: the uh i encourage everybody to check out the website which is hockeyviz.com. um and it's some of it is free lots and lots of it is free i pay my rent by the subscriptions from it though uh it's nice sort of nicely arranged though i won't tell you any of the specific things if you find anything you like uh, behind some of the doors you'll find lots of beautiful graphs and behind other of the doors you'll find somebody asking for money and the somebody is me and so if you are interested in whatever you find you should follow the links and give me the money and then everybody gets to be happy the uh it's hockeyviz.com v-i-z dot com um and it's been it's a surprisingly fun way to make a living and i encourage everybody else to try it
0: and not just too many other people because to... you do still have rent to pay though
1: but, well it's true yes. true
0: <laughs> thanks yes, for having specifically...
2: me quickly no, yeah, of course. And the reason we wanted Micah on is to just to say Will and I are both huge fans of your work. And I I personally encourage everybody to check out that website because it is absolutely fabulous. And yeah, thank you very much, Micah, for coming on.
1: Not at all. My pleasure.
0: Oh, there we go. There Word, go. Well done, everyone. Yeah, I know we've said thank you about a thousand times, but seriously, thank you so much, Micah.
1: You're welcome. Not too rambly, I hope.
0: No, no, rambly no, is what great. we specialize in.
1: <laughs> you were the i i'm sorry, I had to sort of delay you quite so much the as you can imagine the this last stretch of time um is unusually busy and mostly getting the season previews out you know it's a however many thousand words of of writing and the but this year i uh, I was working night and day at it like I do for a couple of weeks um and all of a sudden everything just went right at the last moment and so I'm actually all done. I'm ready for the season.
0: God, oh, fantastic! Hard to believe
1: it. Forty-eight hours to spare. Can you imagine?
0: There we go. Well, you've you've got it as close to the wire as as it seems everybody else does in hockey media. So, well,
1: congratulations. Last year, last year, I did it with six hours to spare. So,
0: so, so you had enough time for for a quick kip and then uh, and then back ready for uh, for the first puck job.
1: That was that was one of those one of those nights where I was like, well, I'll press publish on this and then I'll go to the shop and buy beer. And then I'll be home to answer all the questions, and then I'll have beer. It was that kind of, you know, (laughs) six hours is enough time to go and fetch beer and still be well ready for the the season when it actually begins in however many hours.
0: I mean, I know uh, parts of Nova Scotia are relatively remote, but a six-hour beer run does seem (laughs) a bit excessive. (laughs) uh, I,
1: I have to say, I mean, I love doing podcasts, as you can probably tell. And I'm I'm delighted to come on yours, and it uh, you. it pains me to have to say no to a lot of people as I've had to do, um, in fact, and and now in the 48 hours I'm spending it primarily by messaging all those people who asked me for podcasts and saying, have you forgotten about me? Would you like to have me around after all? And <laughs> like, I'm first... sure
0: they'll be with open arms. Sorry, go on.
1: You're first. You are top of the list.
0: But oh, okay. That is. We'll have to get this out very quickly
2: then. <laughs> oh, my cheeks are all rosy now. I'm very embarrassed and oh, oh dear.
1: <laughs> oh, go on. Where are you both? I'm just curious. The uh, the Dan you mentioned, you were from further north. Where are you both from?
2: I was born and raised in Cheshire. So where all the posh uh, Manchester United footballers' houses are?
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: That's where I'm from. But you live on a very small, very dilapidated tenement in in between all the uh, the gold paved roads.
2: I must say, yes, I'm nowhere near those houses, obviously, but they're in this general area.
0: Sure. And uh, I'm from I'm from Kent, so down near uh, Canterbury at all, if you yep. if you know that way. But now I'm I... living in Norwich with my my wife to be and our, our two year old daughter.
1: Okay. I, no, I've been to Canterbury.
0: <sighs> Fantastic little city. I, I thought I'm a man of a man of culture. Would be familiar with the greatest and worst city in all of the uk
1: so <laughs> uh well, i've also been to milton Keynes. so
0: oh, okay yeah canterbury's just that one above milton Keynes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in fact it's funny that just to tell one story before i run off the okay, uh, so. one of um we were talking earlier about um sort of the the culture fish out of water effect of being in cambridge the uh one of one of my favorite memories of of English people broadly was a specific man I met at Cambridge. Um, the, his name was Phil Ellison. He's a, a financial services chap now, the uh, somewhere in the city. Mm. But uh, but he was from Milton Keynes, and and had the the absolute hardest time trying to come to grips with what with what sort of person I was. He just had no idea how to how to speak to me at all. And and we were quite friendly, and we still are. Although we, I know we don't talk very much. And we had this little group of of mathematicians who were all the sort of four or five of us who fell together, who who got on. And finally, he was so confused. He said, "Mike, I just have to know what class are you?" And I said, <laughs> and he was he was he was very earnest. You know, if I had been working class, he would be able to speak to me in in that way. And if I was middle class, he would have liked some more detail. But then he could have worked out a way. And if I was if I was posh of one type or posh of another type, then he you know he would like he was perfectly happy to accept everybody, but he didn't know how to speak to people unless he knew what class they were, and he could not figure me out. And and in the end I, I sort of had to give him no satisfaction at all. <laughs> There's no <laughs> uh, uh, like and all a, of a
0: very I evasive, to, oh um, in between all I'm above that sort of caste well, system.
1: Well and of course the this is one of those things, you know. Canada and, and Britain are so similar, and the, the heritage is so similar, and yet some distinctions just don't exist, and in other ones that you that you can't anticipate do, and the and so I I just could not help but constantly confuse him. And every time he thought he had me figured out, I was something else.
0: It's a conversation for another times. It's far too sprawling, but the, yes, exactly the the understanding or lack of understanding and differences between all these different english speaking countries it just fascinates me how we can all speak the common tongue but just have such you know entrenched cultural differences that mean we don't understand each other in in so many ways it's just fascinating
1: no it's really i have i'm um, especially now because of hockey work i'm i'm exposed to so many more americans than i used to be because mm. because twitter is just full of americans because there's so many people in america and and the you know you just go on endless permutations of 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 exactly this, you know, and, and those combinations of British and of course me being in Australia too, and and all that, is uh, will keep you well sprawling like you say. Anyway, yeah. I have to get going. I have to start. I have to cook supper tonight.
0: No, you're absolutely fine. We've already stolen enough of your day anyway, Micah. Thank you again so much for your time and um yeah Not have a good
1: season, buddy. Do uh, I mean I expect you will, but do tag me when it comes out and I'll retweet it and so on.
0: thank you thank you thank you very much it's all for exposure anyway so uh, that's that's all we're (laughs) looking for cheers lovely enjoy your dinner see you Micah
1: take care